That's all I can. Physically, yes. Mentally, I may be a blithering idiot. You know, if any of you have ever been in computer training seminars for seven or eight hours, you know exactly what I'm speaking about. So that will be a, a rather interesting week. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure that you are in fellowship, in right relationship with God. Uh, walking by the Spirit so that as we study the Word of God and we live our Christian life, we know that it is a life that is not natural. It is a life that is supernatural, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. We must be in right relationship with God. Therefore, we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any sins to God, to make sure you are uh, walking by the Spirit so that you can be prepared for the study of the Word this evening. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, one thing before we pray. Uh, actually, two things. Uh, a couple of prayer requests. Prayer Praise, first of all, Oleg Lazinski, who is Jim Meyer's right-hand guy, who he's really groomed. He graduated from the school probably 12 or 13 years ago. He's in the first class. Uh, he's a well-organized administrator. He runs the Bible college. He's the administrator for the church. Most of you heard, I mentioned it Sunday, that he got drafted. He's over 40. He's 41. He has three children. And a new law was indeed passed in the RADA this, that went into effect this January. And so when he went down to the draft board uh, on, on uh, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, they, uh, they told him that he was not qualified for service. And that therefore, and they even put a stamp in, in the pre-Soviet or post-Soviet Russian environment. If you have a stamp, you're golden. And they put a stamp in his passport that he was uh, no longer qualified to serve in the military. So his wife, I understand, had a grin from ear to ear for the rest of the day. She was just ecstatic. So that's a real answer to prayer. The other thing is that uh, that actually this afternoon... Uh, some of you know the Hoyden family from years past, and Mike Hoyden is a uh, associate member of the church. He, is, he and his family live down in the kind of the Richmond area. But his younger brother, who I accidentally got to know in the late 80s, uh, just, w- just was uh, promoted. In fact, his promotion was this afternoon to full colonel. And Tim serves up in Fort Lewis, but sadly... Tim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer two weeks ago. He emailed me uh, when I was in Kiev. I got word from Mike and from Tim. And so that is uh, something we need to keep in prayer for, for the Hoyden family, for Tim. And this was certainly not, not something he had expected. So uh, for those of you who know my, my past, Tim was actually... In the ROTC unit, same unit I was in, but about 15 years later, uh, at Stephen F. Austin, and that's how I got to got to meet him. So some we we all of us still keep in touch, even across two or three of the of the decades there. So that's how I got to know him because he was just a probably a diaper baby when I knew his brother. His brother and I are the same age, 
So we just kind of ran into him. He introduced himself, and I looked at another friend, a friend of mine that had also known his older brother and looked at him and went, that name sure sounds familiar. And uh, and he said, yeah, we know a guy named Mike Hoyt. And he got, Tim said, that's my older brother. We just couldn't believe it. So anyway, uh, we need to be in prayer for Tim and his family, and we need to give thanks for uh, the fact that Oleg does not have to serve in the Ukrainian military. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Remember a few moments of silent prayer first. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come before your throne of grace and to bring uh, before your throne of grace these various uh, praises and requests. And, Father, we specifically are thankful for the answered prayer in relation to Oleg and the dra- draft notice you received from the Ukrainian army and that, that he doesn't have to serve. And, Father, we just continue to pray for his uh, ministry with the Word of God Church there in Kiev and for Jim Myers and that ministry and that they may, that may continue to grow and spiritually prosper and that their ministry might continue to to be a real foundation of outreach for the gospel in Kiev and also in in Ukraine. And Father, we also remember the Hoyden family. Remember Tim. We're very grateful for his promotion, uh, which he received today to full colonel, and we're we're thankful for his service to our nation. And Father, we're also very concerned about the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. We pray for him. We pray for his family. We pray that you might give them wisdom in the decisions that they have to make during this time and that you, that it might be your will to use this as an opportunity to uh, heal him, that he might recover, and that this might, no matter what happens, might be a real testimony to your grace and your sufficiency. Now, Father, as we come together to study in a new book this evening and begin our study of First Peter, we pray that you'd help us to focus, to understand the dynamics of this uh, specific epistle and how this fits within the a mosaic of the New Testament books and how it uh, informs us of important and critical doctrines related to how we face adversity in life and how we're to think about adversity in life. And we pray that you guide and direct us this evening in our in our study in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're starting a new study this evening, First Peter. This is the beginnings of the graphic. We don't have it all pulled together yet. But I thought I'd at least put this much up on the screen this evening, focusing on our future hope. And that is a foundational theme in, in First Peter. The, a key word, in fact, the word that is most frequently used in First Peter is the word for suffering. And so that is a major theme, how Christians are to face adversity. And not only do we have the key word for suffering, which is used 15 times in Hebrews, but there are, I mean, 15 times in First Peter, but there are synonyms. For example, you have verses that said, when you are reviled, reviled not. Well, that is an instance of adversity facing opposition. And there are two or three uh more specific terms that are used for different kinds of adversity so that when we get there and we start looking at the key vocabulary in the book, uh, this will really help us to understand the focus. And, of course, another key word that is used is the word hope, and that's used several times, but it also it connects us, as we understand, 
to our, to our personal sense of our eternal destiny. But other words such as inheritance and heirship are also used in First Peter. And that connects us to the same doctrine, our understanding that we're living today in light of eternity, that God is preparing us today for our future role and our future uh, ministry in the bride of Christ, ruling and reigning with Christ as priests unto God during the millennial kingdom. And so this is integral. When we look through this epistle, we will see that again and again the basis for uh, Peter's exhortation to these believers to face and encounter the adversity that they have in life is to do so on the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he faced and endured the suffering on the cross, the just for the unjust. He had complete undeserved suffering on the cross. And most of us have to one degree or another deserved suffering. We're fallen creatures living in a fallen world, and even if it is completely undeserved, often our reaction is some sort of what we try to justify as, uh, I know nobody here has ever done this, righteous indignation. And usually it's just arrogance on our part. We're, we're put out. We're uh, tired of the situation. It irritates us. It's not our agenda. And yet we need to learn how to look at these uh, speed bumps as not speed bumps. That these are God's training tools to mature us and to prepare us for our ultimate destiny to uh, rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so learning how to uh, deal with adversity in life, those unexpected uh, challenges and disasters that come our way, is a critical theme in First Peter. And so it's going to focus us on a good, solid development of that whole doctrine that I call a personal sense of our eternal destiny. So tonight what we're doing, and probably next week, the next two or three nights, is just an opening uh, orientation and survey of First Peter. Whenever we start a book of the Bible, whenever you start reading anything, you ought to survey it. If you just go to the store and you buy a book, now this may not apply to a mystery book or Sherlock Holmes or something like that, but you're reading a nonfiction book, a, hi- a history, uh, something on politics, something on economics, something on theology, you should overview it. You should read the foreword and the introduction, and then you should read the conclusion. In, in a well-written book, the introduction will orient you to what the writer is going to tell you about, what he's going to emphasize, why he thinks it's important to address the topic that he's addressing. In the conclusion, he's going to come back and he's going to uh, tell you uh, what he has told you. He's going to summarize the key ideas, the key things that he has brought out uh, in the, the book. His, the structure and the organization of his thought is going to be revealed where? In the table of contents. So you take a look at the table of contents and you skim that, and that should give you an idea of the structure of his thinking. You can go through and you can hit some of the high points as you go through just to overview and read different critical sections within uh, within the book just to get an idea of where he's going before you start reading through through the book. Sometimes we even have to read uh, a book more than once in order to get it. I remember uh, years and years ago when I first started reading theology and and more advanced uh, ideas in apologetics, and I was reading in Francis Schaeffer, and I didn't have any background in really in a, a philosophical apologetics. 
I didn't have background in a lot of the things that he was talking about in the history of ideas. And I remember a little bitty book that he has in his trilogy called Escape from Reason. And about the time I got to the conclusion, I figured out what he was talking about. It's only like a 90-page book. But I learned from that that I really need to approach reading from this perspective. Well, a book in the Bible really isn't any different from that. And in fact, if you're, uh, if you really want to get into our study of First Peter, then I encourage you to sit down and read First Peter through several times over the next two or three weeks. In fact, this, this applies in many different areas or disciplines in life that as you are going to read something, the first two or three times you read it, don't read it uh, as critically as you will down the road. Read it to just get a, a sense of the flow of the thinking. Just read it to get a sense of what, what is being said and, and how it is, is structured. If we get too critical in our thinking at the very beginning, then we get bogged down in some details and we don't get a proper overview. So it's always good to start with that, that overview. And I like to do that when I begin, uh, begin a new series. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start with some of the introductory issues, introductory mat- matters that are typical of, of any sort of introduction to the Bible, any sort of introduction in a, that you come across in a commentary. And we'll probably won't complete that tonight. We'll get into that some more tomorrow night. I mean, next Thursday night. And then probably two weeks from now, we'll do our flyover of, of the uh, epistle itself before we start getting into some of the specifics. But by going through uh, the introductory issues, it's going to orient us to what some of the problems, some of the pitfalls, some of the questions, and some of the issues are that are going to come along. So in any standard commentary, you pick up commentary, you pick up something like the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is a two-volume commentary that was published by Dallas Theological Seminary back in the early 80s. You pick up just a commentary on 1 Peter. Uh, Any commentary starts off with answering and addressing some basic questions. Uh, Who wrote this particular epistle or book? So we ask the question, who wrote 1 Peter? That may seem rather obvious to you, but that's not always obvious to a lot of people. So we always want to find out who wrote First Peter. And even though you come up with and say, say, oh, Peter wrote it. Well, who is Peter? Who is Peter related to? Who is Peter's father? Who is Peter's mother? Who is Peter's brother? Where did Peter live? What was his business? What was his background? What was his training? What happened to Peter? What were the key events in Peter's life? Uh, Those are things that are important to understand as we come to look at something that any author writes is how does their background, how does their, uh, how do the events in their life shape or influence what it is that they're writing. Second question is always to whom is the epistle written, to whom was the book of the Bible addressed. And part of that might include why it's being uh, address. Those are those are very close questions. So we need to ask the question. And this is a really important question in First Peter, as we'll see when we get there. Second, the third question is: From whence was it written? Where was the writer when he wrote it? Now that's not always important, but it is important in First Peter, and it helps us understand the answer to the second question: To whom uh, was the epistle written? Uh, fourth, why was the epistle written? Why 
Did Peter write this? What was the, uh, usually when you read commentaries or say, what was the occasion? That's, that's the uh, technical term. Why was it? What, what gave rise to the circumstances for Peter to write this? And why does he think it's important? But beyond that, because as we address the scriptures, as students of the word, we understand that uh, the principle of the dual authorship of the Bible. It's written by a human author, but also written by God. And why is it that God thought this was so important to breathe out this particular epistle? Why is this so important that this is breathed out, inspired by God? And why is it important that this would be included in the canon of Scripture? We have 27 books in the New Testament. Why those books? Uh, Paul, we know, wrote two other epistles to the Corinthians. Why weren't they included within the canon? Why weren't they in, inspired? He wrote other epistles that we know of. And, and probably most of the apostles or other apostles wrote other things. We can just assume that to be true, uh, even though there may not be uh, any hard evidence of that. But why were these books included and what was its significance? Another question is, when was it written? Now, that that's also pl- has some, th- some relevance in terms of the second question, to whom it was written, and the third question, from whence it was written. And it also impacts, some, to some degree, the interpretation of the passage. Uh, I mean, interpretation of some passages. And then the last question, what are the key doctrines, themes, and applications in this particular epistle? So those are just the initial flyover types of things that we need to address whenever we begin a study of any particular, any particular book. Now, when it comes to authorship, when we look at the question of who wrote the book, there's two things that we go to. The first is what is referred to as external evidence. And this is evidence outside of the Bible. If I say, ask you the question, who wrote First Peter? And you say, Peter, I say, why? You say, well, because in First Peter 1, one, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but that's internal evidence. It's inside the Bible. So we're just looking here briefly at the beginning with external evidence. In other words, evidence from outside the Bible, evidence from uh, the early post-apostolic writings, the writings in the early church. One thing that's interesting, a lot of times when you sit down and you're having a conversation with somebody who is not a believer, one of the questions always comes up is, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe its claims that it is the Word of God? Why do you really believe that the Bible is the Bible? And many of us will respond to that by saying, well, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Well, that seems to be sort of a self-referential argument, like you're arguing in a, in a circle. I believe the Bible because the Bible says it's the Word of God, because the Bible says it's the Word of God. I believe it's the Word of God. Why do you believe it's the Word of God? Because the Bible says so. Well, what's the evidence to substantiate that particular claim? And one of the things that we'll see in a a few minutes uh, when we talk about the liberal position is that 19th century rationalistic Protestant liberal theology uh, came out with a, a, a lot of attacks against the Bible. And they were not based on history. They were based on their assumptions of the way they thought things were. They were not usually based on on evidence at all. And they claimed that the Bible wasn't written in the first century. A bunch of Galilean fishermen couldn't have done this. That's impossible. See, they're just reading their presuppositions 
in, into the text that they're there to to this was really written a hundred to two hundred years after the events, after these legends about Jesus built up and and things like that. And so you really can't trust uh, trust the Bible. It probably was written and changed over the over over the years. But study of textual criticism and early documents that we found show that no. As a matter of fact, there were very, very few changes. Most of them just had to do with spelling changes. They had to do with word order, things like that. Not, very little things were, were, were substantive. A few places you have phrases or words that are left out. This would typical error that would occur in, in scribal copying. And so uh, one of the interesting things is if we look at the external evidence, if we go back now and we have just incredible amounts of sermons and letters written by early church leaders between roughly 70 A.D. and 250. But especially those early ones that are written right near the close of the, of the first century into the middle of the first century, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons and what they call lectionaries. A lectionary is a, a scripture reading that would be read in, as part of the message on a Sunday morning. And we ha- find these things. And if you take all of those extra-biblical documents that have just quotes from scripture in them, we can almost put together the entire New Testament just from these quotes from those early uh, sermons and letters and and quotations that we have, and that tells us that we have a, that the Bible was indeed written, and most of it was completed by the seventies of the first century. So that's a great thing to understand. I have a couple of unsaved friends, and they always want to trot out these arguments that that well, the Bible really wasn't written until two or three hundred years after Jesus. So how can you trust it? And see, that's the kind of nonsense that you hear on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and all of those other channels that really, I believe the only reason those things ultimately exist within the plan of God and the angelic conflict is is an attack on Christianity. All all the other things that you look at on there that we like to watch, there's things on American history and and, and World War One, and World War Two, all of those things are nice, but they really exist to promote a lot of anti-Bible propaganda, and it's they're just terrible. And if you don't know the the facts biblically, you can really get uh, kicked off center by watching those things. And many people have had their faith shipwrecked by watching those shows, thinking that's that's good good information. So the external evidence tells us uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John and lived from about 70 to 156. This guy was trained by John himself. And he says that Peter wrote First Peter. Clement of Rome, who's uh, considered by Roman Catholics to be the first bishop of Rome, the first uh, after, after Peter, uh, lived, uh, or he he, he flourished from about 88 to 97. He wrote an epistle and mentions that Peter wrote First Peter. Uh, Ignatius, who died in uh, 107, also stated that Peter wrote First Peter. Now, these are very early witnesses. Then a little later, you have Irenaeus, who flourished between 175 and 195, uh, A.D. He also affirmed that Peter wrote First Peter. The epistle of Barnabas, 
that should be singular, Epistle of Barnabas, which claimed to have been written by by Barnabas, the associate of, of, of Paul and, and Mark, uh, that was lit, written either late 1st century to early 2nd century. That also affirmed that Peter wrote 1st Peter. Hermas wrote a, a piece called The Shepherd of Hermas, which was very well respected in the early church and read a lot in churches. It was kind of devotional literature. That also affirms that, first, that Peter wrote 1st Peter. Clement of Alexandria in the late 1st century into the early, or late 2nd century rather, into the early 3rd century, also affirmed the, uh, that Peter wrote, and Tertullian into the 2nd century, as well as Theophilus and Eusebius towards the end of the 2nd century, or into the 3rd century, into the, into the 4th century, uh, in, who wrote his famous uh, History of the Early Church, also concludes that Peter wrote First Peter. So the, the wealth of evidence from the, from the early church is that Peter wrote First Peter. There, there's no dissenting opinion. So historical evidence uh, confirms that. Now when we uh, go a little further, we look at the internal evidence. Now this is the evidence from the Bible. And this is where, of course, as Bible believers, we look for our real authority. Our authority isn't in tradition. Our authority isn't in history. That is just confirmatory evidence. Uh, we really focus on the internal evidence, looking at what the text says. So what supports our claim that Peter wrote this? Well, first of all, because he identifies himself, the author identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right there in the first verse, opening line, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he also claims within this particular epistle to be an eyewitness of the crucifixion. He says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now that's in 1 Peter 5.1. Now that's a very important statement because it, Peter was one of uh, three apostles who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ when his glory was revealed. And remember, uh, Elijah and Moses appeared there, and Peter said, Oh, isn't this great? Let's build a little uh, tabernacle to each each one of these guys, one for Jesus and one for Peter and one for Elijah. And as soon as he got that out of his mouth, God the Father corrected him and, and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You don't... You don't elevate a couple of human prophets uh, to the same level as Jesus Christ. He wanted to give them all the same kind of little hut and treat them all as if they were, they were equal. Once again, Peter always ran around putting his foot in his mouth uh, too quickly. And so 1 Peter 5.1 indicates that the writer of this epistle is, was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory. Now, there were only three guys who could say that. Peter, James, and John. So this is a, that's a really strong piece of evidence inside, um, inside the text. So there are these statements that are similar to also statements that are similar to events and instruction that was given to Peter in the Gospels. So what we have here is specific situations that Peter was involved in in the Gospels. That are alluded to, or like like what I just said in First Peter five one, a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, 
or specific passages that are indicated. For example, in John 21, 15 through 17, this is one of my favorite uh, passages, a little personal instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ to Peter. And he's giving Peter uh, uh, guidance after Peter has betrayed him. This is after the resurrection. And the Lord appeared to the disciples. And this is a great little scene right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's a little beach there where they believe this took place. There's a, it's called the um, Springs at, at Tabga. And this was a place where these warm springs feed into the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, the, the vegetation that grows there is a little different from other places. And the fish like to go there and accumulate there and to feed off of that vegetation. So it's a great place to go fishing. And so the disciples were out in the boat fishing uh, near that location, and they were throwing their nets out, and they weren't catching anything. They went to the Robbie Dean School of Fishing. Everybody else catches. I don't ever get nibbles. So that day, that night, they didn't get anything, and the Lord showed up and said, if you cast your net on the other side, you'll haul in a catch, and they did. That's when they recognized who he was, and Peter just jumped out of the boat and started running up to to uh, uh, see see the Lord there. He was just over-enthusiastic, as usual. And... um, and so the Lord cooked breakfast for, for them. That must have been a pretty, pretty good breakfast. And then he uses that as an object lesson to challenge Peter. And he says, after breakfast, he said to Simon Peter in verse 15, Simon, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord. He said, feed my sheep. Now, that's a different word in verse 15 and verse 17 then the word in verse 16. He repeats this conversation three times. And John 21, 16, without getting into all the details of the text, Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And the word there is a word I have highlighted down at the bottom of the screen, if you can see it. It's the Greek word poimino, which is the verb for verb form related to the noun to shepherd. And it means to feed, to shepherd or to feed the sheep. And so this is the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5.2 when he tells the leaders of this, of this group, which he never identifies as a church, by the way. Uh, he says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. And he says to them, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, and uses that same, same word. So that's, that is connected back to a specific event in, in Peter's, uh, Peter's life. In 1 Peter 5.5, Peter has a great uh, challenge to humility. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in John 13.13-17, as the Lord Jesus Christ taught Peter about uh, cleansing in the whole episode with the wiping of the washing of the feet, that was to teach the importance of forgiving one another and loving one another. Well, the foundation for being able to do both is genuine humility. And so that's a connection. Uh, another connection that we have is in Psalm, the use of Psalm 118.22. In Psalm 118.22, we read, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ took that verse and he quoted it in Matthew 21:42. And guess who's in the context there? Peter. 
And Jesus said, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Where Jesus is applying that verse in Psalm 118.22 to himself. So Peter uses that, and he uses it again in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, where he says, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, and then he quotes Psalm 118, 22, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he ties it together with some other Old Testament passages. Okay, another example of similarities between 1 Peter and Peter is in Acts 4:10 and 11. We read, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom he crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This is an emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. And again, Acts 4:11. This is a stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So, in these verses, all show that, that this emphasis on this particular verse, and that's something that is uh, relevant to to Peter's uh, Peter during his time uh, with Christ. Also, we see the similarity between First Peter one seventeen, where he says, "If you call on the Father who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work, that God's not a respecter of persons." Peter said the same thing in Acts 10.34 when he was talking about uh, God's welcoming Cornelius and the Gentiles into the body of Christ. He said, I have truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Same vocabulary. So that, again, shows a similarity to what we know of Peter uh, from Acts. Uh, emphasis on Christ's resurrection and ascension. 1 Peter 1.21 states, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is similar to what Peter says in emphasizing the death and resurrection of Christ in Acts 2, uh, 32 to 36. We also know that Christ's death uh, is emphasized by Peter as a part of God's uh, divinely ordained plan. In 1 Peter 1.20 we read, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And in Acts 2.23 we read, In him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. So he emphasizes that the death of Christ is part of the foreordained or predetermined plan of God from eternity past. So that shows another similarity. And then an interesting vocabulary similarity is in 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead. The next one is this emphasis on this phraseology of the uh, the living and the dead. In 1 Peter 4, 5, God is referred to as the judge of the living and the dead. And in Acts 10, 42, God is the judge of the living and the dead. Old King James called it the quick and the dead. Louis L'Amour picked that up and, called, and used that as a title for for one of his great Western novels, because that has a different nuance when you talk talking about Western gunfighters and you talk about the quick and the dead. So uh, that really is from the King James Version. It means those who are alive versus those who are dead. Just thought some of you would enjoy hearing that. Okay, First Peter 2.24 says, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And he uses this unusual word. Well, I guess that's really unusual. 
Okay. Uh, they use this unusual word that I have at the bottom of the screen, zulon, which means word or it means uh, wood or tree. Wood or tree. And this is not a common word. And it's used in 1 Peter 2.24. Peter uses it in Acts 5.30. Uh, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, Zulon. And he also used in Acts 10.39, uh, the Jesus uh, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Used that same word. So this is an example of how you do this kind of investigation. You see that there are certain stylistic and vocabulary similarities between uh, the writer of uh, 1 Peter, who claims to be Peter, and what we find in other uh, discourses, other statements uh, of, of Peter. So that helps us to understand that and give evidence that Peter uh, seems to be the, the attested writer. And there's really, until you get to the 19th century, when all kinds of garbage starts to come into our culture, until you get to the 19th century, there's no alternate. Nobody, nobody thinks anybody else wrote First Peter. And then you have the rise of 19th century uh, liberalism. Here come the liberals. 19th century liberalism was the, the child of the Enlightenment. It's the result of the Enlightenment. Now, remember your history. You have the, uh, the, the Renaissance in the southern part of, of Europe that occurs back in the 14, uh, 1400s to 1500s. And in the Renaissance, there's a return back, there's a desire to go back to the ancients, to the Romans and to the Greeks, and a desire to go back to uh, the classical literature. Now, this also impacts Christianity and the culture at the time because they didn't want to just go back to Homer and to Livy and to the ancient writers, uh, to, to uh, Aristotle and to Plato, but uh, the, the Christians wanted to go back to the original documents of the New Testament. And so, and this really impacted North, Northern Europe more than it did Southern Europe. Southern Europe stopped at the Renaissance, where the Northern Europe stopped uh, with the Bible. And this set the stage for the Protestant Reformation. The same thing that was happening is this group that our peace lovers were coming out of the Middle East and trying to conquer Europe. Uh, they're still trying to do that. They go by the name of Islam. But Islam, contrary to all the politicians in the West who are just either idiots or they think we're idiots, Islam is only a religion of peace who are the, for those who are part of the house of Islam. If you're not part of the house of Islam, you're part of the house of war, according to Islamic theology, which means you're the enemy and you need to either, either be killed or convert. Those are the only two options. And they don't press that unless they get to where there's a certain level of percentage within your, your culture. And we're pushing that in Western Europe, where they're making their views known. And that's why we're having these terrorist events taking place in Paris and in uh, other parts of Europe. And we're going to see more and more of that. And it's probably going to come to a city near you. Houston has, from what I hear from my law enforcement friends, has one of the most radicalized uh, Muslim communities. And the only hope for this is the gospel. And I've got to figure out some way that we can get involved in doing some kind of Islamic evangelism. Last week, Pat Kate was here. He spoke at a, a, a Chafer Seminary conference about 
uh, six or seven years ago. And he spent most of his career living in Islamic countries, and he's very much involved with Islamic evangelism. John took the course. I encouraged him to do that. And he's been going over, he was telling me right before class, he's been going over to a mosque and getting engaged in uh, some uh, conversation with, with Muslims. And I've also been put in contact with a couple of other groups in Houston that are trying to network among churches right now uh, ways in which we can uh, figure out ways to get involved in communicating the gospel within the Islamic community, because that's the only hope. I mean, we can blow them away, but that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. And, um, and we might need to do that on the battlefield, but Houston so far isn't the battlefield. So, um, anyway, back in, the, back in the 14th century, as the Muslim hordes were coming up across uh, the, the uh, Byzantine Empire and conquered Constantinople in, in the 1450s, the, the monks, the Eastern Orthodox monks from all these monasteries in Turkey and in Greece to some degree were scared to death and they were gathering up all these old manuscripts that they had and they were fleeing ahead of the Muslim hordes and taking these treasure troves of ancient manuscripts into Western Europe. And all of a sudden people were, getting, were discovering very ancient copies of the biblical text. And there weren't that many copies, uh, old copies of the biblical text or the New Testament around until that point. And so that drove people back to this interest in the, in the, uh, in the biblical text and in the Greek text. And so they started reading the Bible in the original Greek text. And that was very much a part of, of the, 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 uh, the factors that led to the Protestant uh, Protestant Reformation. And so uh, you had the Protestant Reformation, and then that gave birth uh, because there was a rejection of authority. There were always those, and it was the authority of the church, not authority in principle, but there were always those who took that too far. And they not only rejected the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, but they rejected all authority. They started questioning. You've seen those bumper stickers, question authority, they came out of the 60s. Well, that's what they were doing. Anything that made an authoritative statement, they were going to question. And that led to the, uh, to the to, uh, not Protestant, but that led to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was the idea. In fact, it's named by the arrogant folks in the Enlightenment. They were enlightened, but those Christians who preceded us, they were not enlightened. So we're going to call that the Dark Ages because they were influenced by Christianity. The Enlightenment sought to find light and enlighten our thinking based on reason and experience or empiricism apart from any sort of religious influence or biblical influence. So they said if it comes from the Bible, it's automatically suspect information, and we're just going to cut that out. We have to find a neutral starting point, and our neutral starting point is going to be reason. And if it's rational or it can be defended on the basis of empiricism, then we can come, come to truth. So their basic presupposition coming out of the Enlightenment that influenced what, what became known as Protestant rationalism in the 19th century was anti-supernaturalism. That means that, that their deeply held conviction was there really isn't a God, and if there were, he couldn't talk to us anyway. And so they believed in a 
closed universe, and that means that God can't communicate inside the universe. The whole universe, all of creation, what they called nature, was closed. It was all in a hermetically sealed sphere, and God's outside of that sphere. We can't know anything that's outside the sphere, and God doesn't communicate inside the sphere. And so it, their, their assumption is that, that God can't communicate and we can't know him, so we have to start from just reason alone. So they believed that there was no God, and unless reason alone could prove it. But there are limitations to human reason. Another thing that they believed was that God, by definition, could not inspire an inerrant scripture. So they don't believe that in a definition of God that would allow him to be able to inspire Scripture if there was a God. So not only do they start off with an assumption that God doesn't exist, but then their next assumption is that if he did exist, he couldn't communicate. And if he could communicate, he couldn't do it the way Christians say he does it. So that's that's their starting point. So they believe that all human authors of Scripture made mistakes that nobody could, could possibly write anything without an error because God can't do that by definition. These are their presuppositions. This is what they bring to the table. So, the, according to uh, Protestant liberalism, the New Testament was then authored between 150 and 300 years after the events described in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write a thing. They were just ignorant Galilean fishermen. They didn't write anything. And, and these were all written. They were cobbled together by different uh, religious leaders 150 to 300 years later based on uh, legend. And they just imposed their own theology onto these legends that came along. That's why you had people like Albert Schweitzer at the beginning of the 19th century wrote a very famous book called The Search for the Historical Jesus. See, they're not looking for the biblical Jesus because that's got all these layers of legend and religion on top of it. We have to find the real Jesus who's just barely mentioned in the Gospels. Because all that stuff you read in the Gospels, that's just theology and that stuff that, that, you, that uh, you can't know anything about. And so, they believe that the testimony of the human authors of Scripture is irrelevant and by definition unreliable. That's why it's so hard sometimes to witness and have a conversation with someone who's been infected by Protestant liberalism. Now, that's not as, as, as virulent as it is today, but you've got folks that are unbelievers who do hear this, and especially what I've seen is when I'm talking about the New Testament of Christianity to my Jewish friends, they have memorized, it seems, all of the arguments of 19th century liberalism against the uh, divinely inspired text. And you, that's what you hear. You hear all these classic arguments from 19th century Protestant liberalism as to why you can't believe the Bible uh, tells you anything that's true. So that's the basic position of, of uh, 19th century liberalism. That's theological liberalism, not political liberalism. What do they have in common? 
a rejection of authority, of divine authority. That's what they have in common as a starting point, and also an elevation of human ability to discover truth apart from any information from God. That's at the core of both. If you want a really good analysis, look at uh, the book Conflict of Vision. Uh, Conflict of Vision by um, Thomas Sowell. Conflict of Vision. Just read his introduction. And he explains the fact that the core issue between conservatives and, and liberals, historically going back to the 1700s, is that liberals don't believe that man is inherently flawed. Conservatives believe that man is inherently flawed. He's inherently evil. And everything flows out of that presupposition. All right, moving on. So, according to the liberals, they came along and they said verses 1 and 2 and 4.12, from 4.12 down through 5.1, represent later, uh, later editions of this epistle. That's not later additions, it could be that, but it is later editions. Because what they believed is as this, there was a core writing that was added to progressively through the early centuries. And eventually they came along and, um, and they had this, this, this writing and they decided to take a couple of verses and pack it on to give it authenticity. And we're going to say it was written by Peter. Okay, so that's their claim. Uh, what's their evidence? Absolutely nothing. They have no evidence for that claim whatsoever other than that fits their theory. That, so they just want to claim that. They just want to assert it, that, that this is what happened. But there's no evidence that they can come up with to uh, substantiate that particular claim. What's another view they have? Uh, they say that it must have been written after Peter's time, since, that's a typo there, must have been written after Peter's time since the persecution mentioned is more consistent with that of either Domitian, who's the Roman emperor from 81 to 96, or Trajan, who's the Roman emperor from 98 to 117. So they're, they're assuming this, and they're saying, well, he mentions this. But the reality is, is that the adversity that P Peter is mentioning here is pretty general. He's not stating anything specific that would tie it to any overt uh, opposition or adversity. It's a general statement about the kind of suffering that these believers are, are facing. And so um, uh, the evidence is that it ignores the Neronian persecution, which is in the 60s, which is about the time that, that is claimed that this epistle was written. So they say, oh, you know, it couldn't fit what happened under Nero, and it certainly doesn't fit what happens uh, later on. Uh, or it's more consistent with what happens later under Domitian and Trajan, so it couldn't have been Peter, because Peter was dead by then. Okay, a third view that they have is that the Greek in First Peter is too sophisticated. Too sophisticated for an uneducated Galilean fisherman. And their evidence for this is, see, the, over in Acts, in Acts 4.13, the, the uh, Sanhedrin says that these, these two men, John and Peter, are, are uneducated and untrained. But they're not making that statement as an absolute statement that they're, they're a bunch of uneducated fools. As far as the, the 
Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are concerned, they're uneducated because they didn't go through rabbinical training. And therefore, they're uneducated. They don't follow our line of reasoning. They're uneducated because they didn't go to an Ivy League school. They went to some state university. So therefore, they're just uneducated. They don't fit our intellectual, uh, our concepts of the intellectual elite. Uh, They didn't go to the highest schools, so therefore they're uneducated and untrained. So the con, (laughs) that's the rebuttal. This doesn't mean that they weren't well trained. And after, uh, after 30, after more than that, after after 30 years of ministry in a Greek speaking, uh, in Greek speaking world, Peter certainly would have improved and honed his ability to, to, uh, teach and to write in Greek. But he didn't probably, he isn't the only author of the letter because we do know that Sylvanus is mentioned in 1 Peter 5.12 as his amanuensis. Now that's a good word for you if you don't know what it means. You can learn that word and I'll expand your vocabulary for the day if nothing else. That means that this is his secretary, his scribe. And uh, Silas was a companion of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys and is mentioned in a number of Paul's letters. And he had also been a member of the Jerusalem church, and he's mentioned there in Acts chapter 15 as well. So he was a close associate with Peter at this particular time. He was an educated Roman, according to Acts 16, 36-37. And so he could have uh, cleaned up any rough edges in Peter's language. And as Peter is the one who is inspired by God the Holy Spirit, Peter would be overseeing that process and guaranteeing that what came out at the end result was that which was uh, what God the Holy Spirit intended. So that answers that particular uh, objection. So the next thing we need to do is find out who wrote this, this epistle. And this is just a summary of Peter. Now, I'm going to go through a much more in-depth one-night summary of of Peter's life, but let's just review a few facts. He's a Galilean fisherman. He's also known as Simon, and he is known by his Aramaic name, Kephas. His name is Peter, which means a rock. Kephas also means a rock, so in, in English he would be called Rocky. I always thought he, and because he is the son of Jonas, Simon Bar-Jonas, I always thought that in English his, his name would be Rocky Johnson. He's born in Bethsaida, which is another small uh, village on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. He uh, lived later in Capernaum. We know pretty much uh, where he lived in Capernaum because now there's a large Roman Catholic church that's built right over the place where he lived. And I think that the authentication for that is, is pretty accurate because there's attestation of this and graffiti written there where Christians would come and worship, venerate that particular site going back into the late first century. And it's just really impressive when you go to Capernaum and, and see that. He was married. Uh, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So he didn't have any idea that of the Roman Catholic doctrine of celibacy. 
He's initially a disciple of John the Baptist, which shows that he had a tremendous amount of positive volition, very interested in spiritual things as a, as a young man, probably as a teenager and into his early 20s. He became, became a leader of the 12 disciples. He's one of the three that was taken with the Lord Jesus Christ up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, along with James and John. That is going to be critical here, because Peter goes through a certain amount of adversity and hostility in his ministry, just as Paul did. What got Peter through? He's already seen the end game. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That motivated him. That strengthened him so that he could go through the rugged times today in light of eternity because he had gained a glimpse of eternity. And that's what we see running through this whole epistle is that if you want to learn how to make it through difficult times living in this trash heap of the devil's world, then you need to gain a fix on the end game, which is the glory of that which is to come. And that word glory is a major word. If you're reading through First uh, Peter over and over again, notice words that are used again and again like inheritance, hope, glory, saved. These are key words uh, to focus on. Jesus called him Satan. Now, you know you've really messed up when Jesus calls you Satan because he opened his mouth too soon and had some sort of ignorant outburst. He's a leader of the early church, and we see this in Acts chapter 1 through 8. He's also the apostle to the circumcised. That's going to be really important to understand, is, is that he is the apostle to the Jews. How does that impact this epistle? It does. He traveled with his wife. We know that from what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He traveled to Jewish communities because he's an apostle to the circumcised. He's ministering to Jews primarily, not exclusively, just as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and was ministering to the Gentiles uh, mostly, but not exclusively. He's familiar with Paul's writings. We learned that from 2 Peter. He thought that Paul wrote uh, quite a few things that were difficult to understand. He arrived late in Rome. He didn't found the church in Rome. He is not the first pope. He's a late arrival in Rome, and he is not the first pope or the first leader of the church in Rome. He was executed in the Neronian persecution, and he thought it was too much uh, to be crucified right side up like the Lord. So he said, I can't be crucified like the Lord. So they crucified him upside down on a cross. Now that gives us a little bit of an overview of Peter, and we will uh, do a little bit more later on. Now, we've looked at the first question, who wrote First Peter? The second question is, to whom was this epistle written? And the answers are A or B. To primarily a Jewish audience or primarily a Gentile audience. Now this is the sticky wicket. And we'll wait until next time to get into that because we have to go through several things. But I will give you a preview of coming attractions. 99.8% of uh, theologians and those who've written commentaries and Bible students over the course of the church age have said that he's writing to Gentiles. I do not agree at all. And that is based on really fallacious hermeneutics. 
But if you say that he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, that has serious ramifications for how you interpret a number of passages, especially 1 Peter chapter 2. And there are some naughty little problems there that I haven't quite worked my way through yet, but hopefully I will by the time we get there. I'm getting close, but this is, this is really, uh, really interesting and, and fascinating, but it's very clear that he wrote to a Jewish audience, just like James does in James chapter 1, 1. These are Jewish epistles. So we'll get into that uh, next time as part of our uh, opening orientation and drill down into 1 Peter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, focus on these things and to begin this study and orientation of 1 Peter. We pray that this might really be used by you to help us because it looks as if we can anticipate quite a bit of difficulty, adversity in the future, the way the world is going. But we also know that our Lord said that that there would be we can expect much adversity and tribulation simply because we are adopted into your royal family. And Job in the Old Testament said that man is born to adversity as the sparks fly upward. So, Father, we need to be prepared. We need to be mentally prepared, fortified by your word, that as Peter says in this epistle, we might not be surprised by the fiery trial that will come upon us and that we might have strength that comes uh, not from our just our own uh, character or our own background, but from your word, from God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and that we may be strengthened and fortified by our relationship with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.